Holy God, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the communities who have heard them throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts that we might hear your word for us this day. Amen. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart, who do not slander with their tongue and do no, do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who reverence God, who stand by their oath even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest, and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Our second reading for this morning comes from St. Matthew, chapter 5, and also can be found in the middle of your bulletin insert, should you wish to read along. When Jesus saw the crowd, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in, in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the sovereignty of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here ends this morning's reading. The words of our gospel reading this morning are so familiar that I wanted to begin by taking a moment to highlight the meaning integral in Jesus' words by using some slightly different verbiage. So listen again with an open heart and open mind as I read just the first couple of verses in the Beatitudes, but with a little bit different wording. Happy are the broken in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who are left with nothing, for they will be comforted. Happy are those as powerless as children, for they will inherit the earth. So let me just stop for a second there and ask you, with this translation, what's your feeling? Do you believe this? No. Okay. I have a Facebook friend that is so broken in spirit that all the posts are either about the most recent hospitalization for depression or the instability created by the necessitated med changes. The kind of nothing that Jesus refers to harkens back to the time when the Hebrews were in exile and had no land, no rights, and very little if any, hope. The closest modern-day equivalent I can think of would be the refugees, scattered throughout the world, hoping that perhaps for no other reason than kindness, someone, somewhere, in some country, will shelter, feed, and accept them as one of their own. The powerlessness of children needs no embellishment, really. With the advent of modern technology and instantaneous news, we have seen the plight of Central and South American children crossing borders alone. We have seen children wandering the world, parentless and countryless. What we have not seen is the girls of Chibok, stolen from their beds years ago now. The few individual girls that have returned to their homes have faced rejection because they carry with them the ravages of their captivity in their tiny offspring. Here at home, we seem to have stepped into an unprecedented time in our history as a country. According to Mark Strauss, reporter for politics, our country hasn't been as divided as it is today since the Civil War. He asks, we're seeing more polarization than the 1960s with Vietnam and the culture wars? The 1950s with segregation and McCarthyism? He goes on to say the answer is yes. Those were decades of profound ideological division within the United States, but they weren't the apex. Political polarization has grown more pronounced with each passing decade until we've reached now. So, if we are to move forward from polarization and fear toward healing, if we are to do it, as the psalmist says, blamelessly and doing what is right and speaking the truth from our hearts while not slandering with our tongues, doing no evil to friends nor taking up reproach against neighbors, how are we to do it? 
Recently, my husband, Newland, and I were, uh, Newland was describing to me over our evening tea and coffee the way some of his colleagues described their wives in unflattering terms. He said incredulously that descriptors like stupid or let's just say jerks so I won't have to apologize for my language would come out of their mouths. He then looked at me and said, have you ever called me a jerk? I am a redhead, and one of those whom scientists have determined carry the DNA of the Neanderthal. In these genes, although in this package fairly small, I also carry a legitimately inherited Scotch-Irish temper and a mouth that proves to be a little bit faster than my verbal filter. I know better, but knowing better doesn't really do it, does it? Confessing before my husband and now before you all, I have not been blameless and have slandered not my neighbor, but my own beloved. I began to think about how easy it is to reach the point of no return in our divisiveness, personally, as well as communally, how effortless it is to slide into polarization and how incredibly difficult it is to crawl out of this blackest of holes. At this point in time, we are in what is being referred to as the post-truth era. In fact, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, post-truth is the 2016 year word of the year because it so captures our culture today. So what does post-truth mean? According to Wikipedia, what it means is a political culture in which debate is framed largely by appeals to emotion disconnected from the details of policy and by the repeated assertion of talking points to which factual rebuttals are ignored. Post-truth differs from traditional contesting and falsifying of truth by rendering it of secondary importance. So if this is, in fact, the case, how do we find space and peace and groundedness to respond in a manner that is integral with the values that we hold dear, the values that would lead to the happiness of those who are broken in spirit and comfort those left with nothing? whether they be our brothers and sisters in the U.S. Rust Belt, desperate for meaningful employment or the undocumented living in fear of deportation. Our preparation for worship this morning is a quote 
from Viktor Frankl, the famous neurologist, psychiatrist, and Holocaust survivor, who writes, between a stimulus and a response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Shall I do it again? Between a stimulus and a response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Every wisdom tradition in the world from the East or from the West, challenges us to pause in one way or another. Some call it prayer, some call it meditation, but whatever it is called, the crux of what devotees are doing is pausing to find the space that Frankel describes. The space between stimulus and response and I would add the space to connect with God, with self, and with other. Today, what we know through cutting-edge brain science with its scanners and MRIs and neural mapping is that we can move from reaction to response by interrupting our subconscious knee-jerk reptilian brain reactions and literally reprogramming, if you will, the synaptic roadmaps in our heads. So how do we do this? There is no silver bullet. There is no magic pill. There is no substance on earth that will do this for you. This is the work of practice, the practice of removing ourselves from the centers of our universes, opening up our eyes, our minds, and our hearts, and seeing ourselves as only a piece of the whole in which we were all created. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the World War II German theologian, was quoted in an article in the most recent Christian century. The quote was from an essay that he had written called, What is the Meaning? What is Meant by Truth-Telling? In which Bonhoeffer wrote, To speak truthfully, one's gaze and one's thoughts must be directed toward the way the real exists in God and through God and for God. The author of the article goes on to say, there has to be a shared reality beyond self-interest for the concept of truth-telling to gain traction. Otherwise, speech is mere self-assertion. My friends, I believe that what Jesus is saying as he blesses those that are broken and bereaved and powerless is said from a lifetime of practice, 
a lifetime of seeing reality in God and through God and for God, a lifetime of pausing and consciously entering into the presence of the holy, even or maybe particularly in interactions with the other. My friends, we are just nine days past the swearing-in of one of the most contentiously elected presidents in our nation's history, elected out of our divisiveness and into our post-truth reality. Lest we despair, and I mean that completely, lest we despair, now is the time to cultivate the practice of living consciously in God as if we were living through God and acting for God. Now is the time. Find your practice. Let it transform you. Then let yourself transform this broken, bereft world into a place where all will be blessed.